welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I'm Lucas Stock, and this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Thank you for tuning in today to join in as I discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. As you can tell, it is once again going to be just me today. We had a little bit of last-minute changes to our recording schedule, but instead of just reposting an old episode, I decided uh, it would be better to come out with something uh, new, so we're going to be doing something a little different today. Before we jump into that, this is being recorded on Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all the biological, spiritual, adoptive uh, fathers out there. And also big shout out to Tristan, just became a dad a couple days ago. Congrats, my guy. And uh, yeah, today, since it is just me, instead of me blabbing on like I've done in the past in these solo episodes, I decided I would read um, a selection from Gregory of Nazianzus, St. Gregory of Nazianzus. And uh, that way, it's not just me trying to come up with interesting things to say or, uh, you know, creative things to say, but instead I can, in recorded fashion, in audio fashion, pass along some well-established words that we've received down through the centuries of our one of our fathers in the faith, Gregory of Nazianzus. So this uh, selection that I'll be reading is his 27th oration. Um, the title in this edition is an introductory sermon against the Eunomians, who were a group of heretics. And the um, collection that I'm reading this from is, is one of the popular patristics uh, published by St. Vladimir Seminary Press, titled On God and Christ. Uh, and it's a collection of five theological orations and then two letters that Gregory of Nazianzus wrote to someone named Clodonius. This uh, introductory sermon is the first oration in this collection of five, and it serves really, I think, for my purposes today, rather than diving into one of the more meatier orations later in the collection, where he's getting into God, um, both in terms of Father, Son, and Spirit, in terms of arguing against uh, different conceptions of the Son or the Spirit that would diminish their divinity. Um, this introductory sermon sets the, you know, in reading this as a single collected book, it sets the stage for the other orations, but even more than that, I think it sets the stage for how to do theology, uh, which is obviously something we've talked about on this podcast before and something that we try to do is to um, do theology in a way that is that is edifying to not only ourselves having any given conversation, but also hopefully edifying to the church at large in some uh, fashion. And, you know, Gregory of Nazianzus, there's a reason he's called Gregory the Theologian. And this book, or this oration rather, is a great example of some of what earned him that title um, from sort of a disposition and method standpoint. Really what, you know, in, in very intricate and sometimes dense language, if you spend time with him, what you'll, what you'll see and hear in this oration specifically, in this introductory sermon, as it were, is a presentation of the proper attitude of the Christian theologian. And we'll see what that is as we go forward, so I won't try and, you know, 
put the cart before the horse here, but I just wanted to give a little bit of an introduction into what I'm reading and also why I'm reading it and what you can kind of be looking for and listening for if you choose to stick around for the rest of this episode. So without further ado, um, this is Gregory of Nazianz. This is Oration 27, An Introductory Sermon Against the Eunomians. I shall address my words to those whose cleverness is in words. Let me begin from scripture. Lo, I am against you and your pride. There are people, believe me, who not only have itching ears, their tongues also, and now I see even their hands itch to attack my arguments. They delight in the profane and vain babblings and contradictions of the knowledge falsely so called, and in strife of words which lead to no useful result. Strife of words, that is the term given to all elaborate verbiage by Paul, who proclaims and confirms the short and final account. Paul, the pupil and teacher of fishermen. These people I speak of have versatile tongues and are resourceful in attacking doctrines nobler and worthier than their own. I only wish they would display comparable energy in their actions. Then they might be something more than mere verbal tricksters, grotesque and preposterous word gamesters. Their derisory antics invite derisive description. But in fact, they have undermined every approach to true religion by their complete obsession with setting and solving conundrums. They are like the promoters of wrestling bouts in the theaters, and not even the sort of bouts that are conducted in accordance with the rules of the sport and lead to the victory of one of the antagonists, but the sort which are stage-managed to give the uncritical spectators visual sensations and compel their applause. Every square in the city has to buzz with their arguments. Every party must be made tedious by their boring nonsense. No feast, no funeral is free from them. Their wranglings bring gloom and misery to the feasters and console the mourners with the example of an affliction graver than death. Even women in the drawing room, that sanctuary of innocence, are assailed, and the flower of modesty is despoiled by this rushing into controversy. Such is the situation. This infection is unchecked and intolerable. The great mystery of our faith is in danger of becoming a mere social accomplishment. I am moved with fatherly compassion, and as Jeremiah says, my heart is torn within me. Let these spies therefore be tolerant enough to hear patiently what I have to say on this matter, and to hold their tongues for a while, if, that is, they can, and listen to me. You can lose nothing by it in any case. Either I shall speak to them that have ears to hear, and my words will bear fruit, and you will benefit, for while he who sows the word sows it in every kind of mind, it is only the good and productive kind which bears fruit. Or else, if you spit on this speech of mine as you have on others, when you go away, you will take with you more material for your mockery and attacks on me, and you will then feast yourselves even better. But do not be surprised if what I say is contrary to your expectations and contrary to your ways, since you profess to know all and teach all, an attitude which is too naive and pretentious. I would not offend you by saying stupid and arrogant." Discussion of theology is not for everyone, I tell you. Not for everyone. It is no such inexpensive or effortless pursuit. Nor, I would add, is it for every occasion or every audience. Neither are all its aspects open to inquiry. It must be reserved for certain occasions, for certain audiences, and certain limits must be observed. It is not for all people, but only for those who have been tested and have found a sound footing in study, and more importantly, have undergone or at the very least are undergoing purification of body and soul. For one who is not pure to lay hold of pure things is dangerous, just as it is for weak eyes to look at the sun's brightness. What is the right time? Whenever we are free from the mire and noise without, and our commanding faculty is not confused by illusory wandering images, leading us, as it were, to mix fine script with ugly scrawling, or sweet-smelling scent with slime. 
We need actually to be still in order to know God, and when we receive the opportunity to judge uprightly in theology. Who should listen to discussion of theology? Those for whom it is a serious undertaking, not just another subject like any other for entertaining small talk, after the races, the theater, songs, food, and sex, for there are people who count chatter on theology and clever deployment of arguments as one of their amusements. What aspects of theology should be investigated, and to what limit? Only aspects within our grasp, and only to the limit of the experience and capacity of our audience. Just as excess of sound or food injuries, just as excess of sound or food injures the hearing or general health, or if you prefer, as loads that are too heavy injure those who carry them, or as excessive rain harms the soil, we too must guard against the danger that the toughness, so to speak, of our discourses may so oppress and overtax our hearers as actually to impair the powers they had before. Yet I am not maintaining that we ought not to be mindful of God at all times. My adversaries, ever ready and quick to attack, need not pounce on me again. It is more important that we should remember God than that we should breathe. Indeed, if one may say so, we should do nothing else besides. I am one of those who approve the precept that commands us to meditate day and night, to tell of the Lord evening and morning and at noon, and to bless the Lord at all times, or in the words of Moses, when we lie down, when we rise up, when we walk by the way, or when we do anything else whatever, and by this mindfulness be molded to purity. So it is not continual remembrance of God I seek to discourage, but continual discussion of theology. I am not opposed either to theology, as if it were a breach of piety, but only to its untimely practice, or to instruction in it except when this goes to excess. Fullness and surfeit even of honey, for all its goodness, produces vomiting. And to everything there is a season, as Solomon and I think, and what's well's not well if the hour be ill. A flower is completely out of season in winter, a man's clothing is out of place on a woman, a woman's on a man, immoderate laughter is unseemly during mourning as are tears at a drinking party. Are we then to neglect the due season only in the discussion of theology, where observing, where observing the proper time is of such supreme importance? Certainly not, friends and brethren. I still call you brethren, though your attitude is not brotherly. Do not let us accept such a view. We must not be like fiery, unruly horses, throwing reason our rider and spitting out the bit of discretion which so usefully restrains us and running wide of the turning post. Let us conduct our debates within our frontiers and not be carried away to Egypt or dragged off to Assyria. Let us not sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land, by which I mean before any and every audience, heathen or Christian, friend or foe, sympathetic or hostile. These keep all too close a watch on us, and they would wish that the spark of our dissensions might become a conflagration. They kindle it, they fan it, by means of its own draft they raise it up to the skies, and without our knowing what they are up to, they make it higher than those flames at Babylon which blazed all around. Having no strength in their own teaching, they hunt for it in our weakness. And for this reason, like flies settling on wounds, they settle on our misfortunes, or should I say our mistakes. Let us be blind to our doings no longer. Let us not neglect the proprieties in these matters. If we cannot resolve our disputes outright, let us at least make this mutual concession to utter spiritual truths with the restraint due to them, to discuss holy things in a holy manner, and not to broadcast to profane hearing what is not to be divulged. Do not let us prove that we are less reverent than those who worship demons and venerate obscene tales and objects. They would sooner give their blood than disclose certain words to non-initiates. We must recognize that as in dress, diet, laughter, and deportment, there are certain standards of decency. The same is true of utterance and silence, particularly as we pay a special honor to the word among the titles and properties of God. 
let even our contentiousness be governed by rules. Why do, we allow, why do we allow audiences hostile to our subject matter to listen to discussion of the generation and creation of God, or of God's production from non-being, and such dissections and distinctions and analyses? Why do we appoint our accusers as our judges? Why do we put swords into our enemies' hands? How, I ask you, will such a discussion be interpreted by the man who subscribes to a creed of adulteries and infanticides, who worships the passions, who is incapable of conceiving anything higher than the body, who fabricated his own gods only the other day, and gods at that distinguished by their utter vileness? What sort of construction will he put on it? Is he not certain to take it in a crude, obscene, material sense, as is his wont? Will he not appropriate your theology to defend his own gods and passions? If we abuse these terms ourselves, it will be difficult indeed to persuade such people to accept our way of thinking. And if they have a natural inclination to invent new kinds of evil, how could they resist the evil we offer them? This is what our civil war leads to. This is what we achieve by fighting for the word with greater violence than is pleasing to the word. We are in the same state as madmen who set fire to their own houses, tear their own children limb from limb, or reject their own parents regarding them as strangers. Once we have removed from our discussions all alien elements and dispatched the great legion into the herd of swine to rush down into the abyss, the next step is to look at ourselves and to smooth the theologian in us, like a statue, into beauty. But first, we must consider what is this disorder of the tongue that leads us to compete in garrulity? What is this alarming disease, this appetite that can never be sated? Why do we keep our hands bound and our tongues armed? Do we commend hospitality? Do we admire brotherly love, wifely affection, virginity, feeding the poor, singing psalms, nightlong vigils, penitence? Do we mortify the body with fasting? Do we through prayer take up our abode with God? Do we subordinate the inferior element in us to the better, I mean the dust to the spirit, as we should if we have returned to the right verdict on the alloy of the two which is our nature? Do we make life a meditation of death? Do we establish our mastery over our passions, mindful of the nobility of our second birth? Do we tame our swollen and inflamed tempers? Or our pride, which comes before a fall, or our unreasonable grief, our crude pleasures, our dirty laughter, our undisciplined eyes, our greedy ears, our immoderate talk, our wandering thoughts, or anything in ourselves which the evil one can take over from us and use against us, bringing in death through the windows, as scripture has it, meaning through the senses. No, we do the very opposite. We offer freedom to the passions of others, like kings declaring an amnesty after a victory on the sole condition that they give their assent to us, and thus rush against God more violently than before, for this discreditable purchase we pay them a dishonorable price, license in exchange for impiety. However, since you are so fond of talking and of the dialectic method, I will address a few questions to you, and you shall answer as the voice speaking through the whirlwind and the clouds said to Job. Are there many mansions in God's house, as you are taught, or only one? Many, you will of course concede, and not merely one. Are all of them to be filled, or only some of them, and not others, so that these will be empty and prepared in vain? Yes, all of them. Nothing which God does is without purpose. Could you explain what you understand by this mansion? Is it that rest and glory reserved yonder for the blessed, or is it something other than this? No, that is exactly what it is. Since we are agreed on this, let us examine a further question. Is there any meaning in the provision of these different mansions as I maintain, or is there none? Certainly there is. What is it? It is that there are different patterns of life and avocations, and as they lead to different places according to the proportions of faith, we call them ways. Must we travel along these ways, or only some of them? Yes, all of them. 
if one individual is able, if not, as many as possible. Failing that, some of them. Failing even that, it is a great thing, at least in my opinion, to follow one way with distinction. You have answered the questions correctly. Well now, when you read there is one road and that a narrow one, what do the words seem to you to indicate? One, because it is the way of goodness. It is one way, even though there are many branches. Narrow, because of the effort it involves, and because it can be trodden only by a few, compared with the numbers of our adversaries, or those who travel by the way of wickedness. I agree. Well then, my friend, if this is so, why is it that people like you condemn our doctrine for its alleged poverty, reject all the other ways, and rush, pushing and shoving along one way only, the road you think is that of reason and study, but I say is of gossip and sensationalism? Except the rebuke of Paul, who makes this bitter reproach, when after enumerating the gifts of the Spirit, he says, are all apostles, are all prophets, and so on. Nevertheless, let us grant that you yourself have reached the heights, gone beyond them higher, if you like, than the clouds, that you have looked on things which are not to be seen, that you have heard words human lips may not utter, that a second Elijah you have been raised up into the, into the sky, that a second Moses you have been judged worthy to see God, that a second Paul you have been caught up into heaven. Even so, why do you then try to mold other people into holiness overnight, appoint them theologians, and as it were, breathe learning into them, and thus produce ready-made any number of councils of ignorant intellectuals? Why do you try to entangle your weaker brethren in your spider's webs as if this were some brilliant feat? Why do you stir up wasps' nest against the faith? Why do you conjure up a crop of dialecticians to attack us, like the earth-born warriors in the old stories? Why have you gathered together as though you were sweeping up rubbish into a gutter, all the weediest and most effeminate specimens of the male sex, soften them still further with flattery, and thus set up your revolutionary profanity industry, a shrewd exploitation of their silliness. Do you continue to speak even after these charges? Can it be that nothing else matters for you but your tongue must always rule you, and you cannot hold back words that once conceived must be delivered? Well, there are plenty of other fields in which you can win fame. Direct your disease there, and you may do good. Attack the silence of Pythagoras, or the Orphic beans, or the extraordinary pretentiousness of thus spake the master. Attack Plato's ideas and the re-embodiments and cycles of our souls, and their recollections and those distasteful love affairs where the soul was the object, but the beautiful body the root. Then there is Epicurus's atheism, or his atoms, or his ideal of pleasure, unworthy of a philosopher. Or Aristotle's mean conception of providence, his artificial system, his mortal view of the world, and the human-centered nature of his teaching. Or what about the superciliousness of the Stoics? the greed and vulgarity of the cynics, attack the void which is full of nonsense, or all the mumbo-jumbo of gods and sacrifices, idols, demons, beneficent or malignant, of soothsaying, summoning the gods or the spirits of the dead and of the influences of the stars. If, however, you reject these subjects as unworthy of your intellect, being petty and often refuted, and you wish to move in your own field and fulfill your ambitions he there, here also I will provide you with broad highways. Speculate about the universe, or universes, about matter, the soul, about nature's good and evil, endowed with reason, about the resurrection, the judgment, reward and punishment, or about the sufferings of Christ. In these questions, to hit the mark is not useless, to miss it is not dangerous. But of God himself, the knowledge we shall have in this life will be little, though soon after it will perhaps be more perfect. In the same Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That was... Gregory's oration, introductory sermon against the Eunomians, where what he's really doing is laying the groundwork for how the Christian theologian ought to approach the task of theology. I hope that my delivery was not 
to uh, Bungled. I hope that you are able to follow along. And I hope that you'll check out the rest of uh, not just this oration I read, but the rest of this collection that, um, like I said before, is very accessible, affordable, and conveniently published by St. Vladimir Seminary Press. Um, other than that, we will be back with a regularly scheduled uh, episode for next week. Uh, but until then, I just want to thank you for tuning in, listening to this episode of the Doxology Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter at Doxology Podcast or shoot us an email at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love your feedback, questions, ideas for future episodes, anything else that you want to share. Um, yeah, I mean, tell us tell us what you thought about this format. Tell us if this is something you'd like us to do together sometime, make a regular thing, um, or just uh, shoot us a message to say hi. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, we'll see you.